Section 13 of The Bible Under Trial. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr. The Citadel, Christ, Parts 1 through 3. Till recently, attention has been chiefly absorbed in the criticism of the Old Testament. Now, as was hinted in the opening paper, the battle about the Bible tends again to concentrate itself in the New Testament and supremely about the central figure there, Christ himself. This result was inevitable. The question. What think ye of Christ? Is one to which every age must anew give an answer, and into which, as time rolls on, every fresh phase in the controversy between faith and unbelief invariably resolves itself. Probably the question was never raised in a more acute form than it is at the present moment. It is a marvelous testimony to the truth of the apostolic declaration, God gave unto him the name which is above every name, Philippians chapter 2 verse 9, that in all the whirl of controversy the one thing on which earnest men seem to be agreed is that on Christ and his religion, in some form, depend the world's religious hopes. A very negative writer, Vinell, does not hesitate to say, after Jesus there is either his religion or no religion. But who is Jesus and what is his religion? Here the roads part, and a great gulf appears between those who receive Jesus as the New Testament presents him, and those who professing to revere him as the spiritual leader of the future, yet strip him of every supernatural attribute, and, in loyalty, as they think, to the exigencies of modern thought, reduce him to simply human and natural dimensions. Part 1 For this avowedly is the alternative with which we are now presented. Observers of the signs of the times have long seen it coming. Footnote. I have personally constantly urged that this was the gravitation level of most of our modern theories about Christ. In an essay on the Parisian School of Theology, in my volume on Richlianism, I wrote, a universal Father God whose presence fills the world and all human spirits, Jesus, the soul of the race in whom the consciousness of the Father and the corresponding spirit of filial love first came to the full realization. The spirit of filial sonship learned from Jesus as the essence of religion and salvation, such in some is the new theology. All else is dressing, disguise, abergloba, religious symbolism, 
inheritance of effete dogmatisms. Will this suffice for Christianity? It is this question which the Church of the immediate future will have to face and meet with a very distinct yes or no. Pages 151 to 152. That crisis seems now upon us. End of footnote. And we should be thankful that disguises are at length being thrown off and that we are frankly and even passionately told that nothing but a purely humanitarian Christ will satisfy the demands of the modern intellect. It is not denied that the Gospels and other New Testament writings give us a very different picture. Professor N. Schmidt, in his book, The Prophet of Nazareth, fully allows that the Christology of the creeds is a consistent development of what is found in the New Testament. There is no chasm, he truly says, between the latest forms of thought in the New Testament and the conceptions prevalent in other Christian writers of the second century. The creeds are a consistent development of certain ideas that unquestionably hold an important place in New Testament literature. The chief factors in the construction of Christological dogma were an honest interpretation of the scriptures and an equally honest interpretation of the facts of Christian experience. Pages 4 to 6. This bears out what has been urged on deaf ears that the assault on so called dogmas about Christ is not simply an attack on church creeds, but at bottom an attack on the teaching of the New Testament itself, and it is good again to have matters brought to this naked issue. Nevertheless, the Christ of dogma, i.e., a truly supernatural, divine Christ, the Incarnate Son, is rejected and the newer science sets itself to disengage the real, historical, non-miraculous Jesus from the rap pages of tradition and legend in which his image is enswathed. When this is done, his person and religion are naturally found to have no real semblance to the Christ of the Pauline writings and a cleft is assumed to exist between the genuine teaching of Jesus and the theology of Paul, who is credited with having given the lead to the disfigurement of Christianity that has since prevailed. It cannot be too strongly repeated that here is the true center of current religious controversy. The views just indicated penetrate books, newspapers, magazines. In Germany, an able and intensely active party has set itself to their propagation in the press and by means of cheap, popularly written books, Volksbücher. Writers like Busset, Neumann, Bernle represent them in translation in this country. The aid of fiction is called in and the novel Holy Land, now also translated, which embodies a life of Jesus on the new lines, sells in its tens and well nigh its hundreds of thousands. In America, the movement is represented by recent books of the kind already named, 
Professor Foster's Finality of the Christian Religion in Professor Schmidt's The Prophet of Nazareth, all which gives matter for thought, for gratitude too, I think, in the proof it affords that Jesus retains his supreme interest for the thoughts of men, and is today, as ever, compelling decision on his character and claims. Anything rather than indifference. When Christ is fairly set in the eyes of the world, his claims may be trusted to take care of themselves. I shall say little more than I have done on the connection of this new phase of New Testament criticism with the Old Testament criticism we have already studied, though that is an aspect of the subject which should not be overlooked. The one movement is in truth merely a continuation of the other. The same principles, the same methods rule in both. It was to common sense vision an impossibility for criticism to riot in the fashion it had been doing for some decades in the Old Testament, without at an early period descending, flushed with its successes there, to wreak a like work of disintegration on the New Testament. Only folly could imagine that it was possible to stand permanently with an advanced liberal leg in the Old Testament and a conservative leg in the New. As Professor Schmidt puts it, the movement could not stop at the Old Testament. Page 29. The critics, therefore, have the fullest justification for claiming that their New Testament work is but the logical carrying out of the principles for which assent had been obtained in Old Testament study. And surprise need not be felt when one sees Old Testament scholars like Wellhausen and Gunkel coming forward to take their share in New Testament discussion. To some, this will lend additional sanction to the results reached in the New Testament. To others, perhaps a larger number, the results may cast doubt retrospectively on the whole critical procedure. Part 2 What verdict is now to be passed on this new so-called historical religious view of Jesus in which the credit of the Gospels and Epistles, not to say the whole conceptions of Christianity as the world has hitherto understood it, is so absolutely at stake. I propose, in the first instance, to let the new view pass judgment on itself by looking simply at the forces of work in its construction and at the kind of results they yield. First of all, it is important to observe that, in the new theories of the life of Jesus, as in the radical Old Testament criticism, the assumed premise of the entire treatment is the denial of the supernatural. This is where Professor Julius Kaufton of Berlin in his pamphlet, Jesus and Paulus, formerly noticed, joins issue. You claim, he says, to be applying an historical method. In reality, 
your procedure has not its roots in method at all. What lies behind it is the so-called modern view of the world, a view which embraces everything in an unbroken causal connection. Pages 4 and 5. This being presupposed, the view of Christ and Christianity has to be clipped down to suit, at whatever expense to the history. Footnote. I formerly quoted some of Kafton's strong words in this connection. I may give another sentence or two. The new procedure, he says, means this. We will know the history, not as it is or was, but as it ought to be. Ought to be according to our presuppositions, according to the presuppositions of our modern view of the world. Page 5. And he declares that to this mode of treatment, the believing community will never adapt itself. It will feel it to be an apostasy from faith. And this feeling, which it has, is thoroughly justified in fact. Page 9. End of footnote. This anti-supernaturalistic principle is not only admitted, but is paraded in all the works I have named. A man is not a modern who does not admit it. Professor Foster goes further and affirms, an intelligent man who now affirms his faith in such stories, miraculous narratives like the biblical, as actual facts can hardly know what intellectual honesty means. Page 132. It has come then to this, that in a book published with the endorsement of the University of Chicago, it is declared that a man who believes any longer in the resurrection of Jesus can hardly be intellectually honest. Such arrogance, like vaulting ambition, or leaps itself, it only discredits the cause it is meant to support. This, however, is the fundamental assumption of all these writers, of Busset, of Vernley, of Professor Schmidt, of the author of the story Holy Land, the Jesus of which is a nervous, self-doubting, semi-hysterical being whose ideals are often admirable, but whose sanity is sometimes doubtful. Granting it, it is easy to see what havoc it makes of the Gospels. Jesus has, at all costs, to be reduced to natural dimensions. He is a man naturally born. Wellhausen simply cuts out Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2. His parents were Joseph and Mary. He wrought no miracles in the proper sense, though faith cures may be attributed to him. It is doubtful if he even claimed to be the Messiah. Schmidt denies it. Foster is doubtful, but allows the probability. When he died, there was an earthly end of him. The resurrection stories are legendary. What really lay behind them, no one now knows, and science does not concern itself to ask. Precisely, but then, as no one likewise sees, all this was really settled before the inquiry began. That is, therefore, no particular critical method involved in it. The problem to be dealt with was, assumed to start with, 
that nothing supernatural entered into the birth, life, and death of Jesus. How to explain away the narratives which say that it did. The whole matter, obviously, is a foregone conclusion, and unbiased consideration of evidence is an impossibility. This raises the question which might be glanced at before going further. By what right is the supernatural thus ruled out of the history of Revelation, and especially out of the history of Christ? It will be difficult indeed for these able gentlemen who so freely charge intellectual dishonesty on their opponents to give an answer which does not already beg the question. I notice that the intellectual lineage they claim for themselves as moderns usually has at its head Spinoza, and I grant that, in a system like Spinoza's, where God and nature are one, there is no room for such deviations from or transcendencies of the natural order as we call miracle. But it is surely vastly different in a theistic scheme in which God has a being above the world as well as in it, is a being of fatherly love deeply interested in the welfare of his creatures, is free, self-determined, purposeful, has moral ends, overrules causes and events for the inbringing of a kingdom of God. On this, the Christian view of God, it is difficult to see why, for high ends of revelation and redemption, a supernatural economy should not be engrafted on the natural, achieving ends which could not be naturally attained, and why the evidence for such an economy should, a priori, be ruled out of consideration. The Christian thinker will not lightly accuse his opponents of intellectual dishonesty, but he may with justice charge them with intellectual inconsistency in denying to God, as so conceived, a power of entering for redeeming ends in a supernatural way into human history. This is, in short, a matter to be determined not by a priori assumptions, but on the ground of evidence, and it is equally a begging of the question to say that evidence cannot exist of a kind, degree, and quality adequate to sustain faith in the supernatural facts involved in the life of Jesus. Here is an ultimate dividing line and there is not the least likelihood that the general intelligence of men will ever endorse the high a priori negations of the modern theorists. Part 3. The chief instrument by which the evidence for Christ's supernatural claims is broken down in these theories, I observe next, is a radical criticism of the Gospels, analogous to what we have seen employed in the Old Testament. The criticism will be looked at by itself in a succeeding paper. Meanwhile, I note only a few results. The Gospels are taken from the writers whose names they bear, are put late, 
are declared to be in their main contents legendary, are accepted, rejected, altered, reconstructed at the critic's good pleasure. With what result? Everything, of course, that militates against the naturalistic hypothesis is cleared away. As to how much is left, the authorities differ. Some of the more extreme will not allow Jesus to be an historical figure at all. Footnote. Professor Foster writes, At this writing, the sensation of the hour in theological Germany is a brilliant and effective pastor who has concluded that Jesus was an ideal construction of a definite social circle. Page 326. The book from which quotations are given is Das Christus Problem by A. Kalthoff, 1903. End of footnote. At most, only a few sayings can be attributed to him with certainty. Schmiedel. Others do not go so far and rescue from the sources the more or less vague outline of his ministry. And, probably, certain fragments of his teaching. It was with a deep satisfaction, Professor Schmidt tells us, that he found himself borne along to the conviction that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed, and that some of the events of his life and some of his words may be recovered, pages 233-234. to even if Professor Schmidt retains this as a personal conviction, one wonders how, in the clash of contradictory opinions, he is to convey his conviction to others so as to make it, as he hopes, the basis of a religion of the future. On much, however, even in this minimum of knowledge about Jesus, there rests by admission great uncertainty. It is doubted, for instance, as by Reed, Schmidt, and others, whether Jesus ever claimed to be the Messiah. Testimonies that he did are got rid of by the usual methods. With more plausibility, it is denied by a considerable section, Wilhausen, Schmidt, etc., that Jesus ever used the title, the Son of Man, as a messianic designation or in an emphatic sense at all. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and the alleged Aramaic equivalent of this phrase, Barnasha, footnote. It is very doubtful if this was the term Jesus employed, end of footnote, means simply, we are told, man. So most of the passages in which the phrase occurs are emptied of their significance and the word man is substituted, e.g., man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Man is Lord of the Sabbath, Mark chapter 2, verses 10 and 28. But not to refer to other passages where this meaning is impossible, the theory shatters on the simple fact that the authors of our Greek Gospels, who presumably knew Aramaic and were, on the theory, translating from it, finally attached to the word or phrase the unique sense, the Son of Man. Most scholars, accordingly, now again reject this philological speculation and allow that Jesus used the title 
as also the title Son of God, which Schmidt would take from him likewise. Still more futile is the attempt to eradicate the messianic claim from the life of Jesus. If any fact in history is well attested, it is that Jesus was put to death for claiming to be the King of the Jews, the Messiah. His words, actions, claims, parables, the functions he ascribes to himself, e.g. judge of the world, his behavior on his last journey, the consentient accounts of his trial, admit of no other explanation. This is a rock-fast fact on which criticism beats itself in vain. Footnote. Even Pusset, Pusset says in his Jesus, it will be recognized more and more clearly as time goes on that the criticism which attempts to shake these well-established points of the tradition merely succeeds in overreaching itself. Page 170. End of footnote. There is, however, yet another branch of the newer critical method which has of late come into great prominence and bids fair to be more heard of in the future. I mean the application to the Gospels of the method of comparative mythology. This, likewise, is found a serviceable instrument for dissipating such narratives as those of the virgin birth and of the resurrection into fantasies. Professor Gunkel of Berlin has made a noteworthy incursion into this field in a contribution to the religious historical understanding of the New Testament, but illustrations can be found nearer home. Like Gunkel and like Farnell, in his Evolution of Religion, Dr. Chain, in his Bible Problems, applies the comparative method and finds the key to what is most distinctive in the gospel history in ethnic mythology. He, too, complains that, while Old Testament criticism was sweeping the field, the higher criticism of the New Testament was practically set on one side. Pages 11 and 12 and he endeavors in this volume to do something to supply the lack. On the basis of Arabian, Babylonian, Egyptian, and Persian parallels, he seeks to show how beliefs, like those of the virgin birth of Jesus, his descent into Hades, not in the Gospels, his resurrection and his ascension arose. On the ground of facts supplied by archaeology, it is plausible he thinks, to hold that all these arose out of a pre-Christian sketch of the life, death, and exaltation of the expected Messiah, a thing no one ever heard of, itself ultimately derived from a widely current mythic tradition respecting a solar deity, page 128. Paul's statement that Christ died and that he rose again according to the scriptures in reality points to a pre-Christian sketch of the life of Christ, partly, as we have seen, derived from widely spread non-Jewish myths and embodied in Jewish writings, page 113. One has only to take with this derivation of essential Christian beliefs from primitive Oriental myths, page 117, 
the admission of Wellhausen in his introduction to the first three Gospels. The resurrection was the foundation of the Christian faith, the heavenly Christ, the living and present head of the disciples, page 96, to see whither such theories tend. But the reader will also mark the foundation, a purely imaginary pre-Christian sketch. Footnote. Professor Schmidt also has his hypothetical pre-Christian Aramaic apocalypse, which he thinks is used in the Gospels, page 132. End of footnote. Based on Babylonian and other myths, which is first thought of as plausible, then is converted into a certainty, and reasoned from as a fact. By such gossamer theories, it is actually thought possible to subvert the faith of Christendom in its most characteristic facts. As a type of theory of yet more extravagant but still kindred order, I might refer to the extraordinary speculation on the origin of Christianity in that much belauded but in this region utterly fantastic book. Dr. J. G. Fraser's Golden Bough. Footnote. The theory is propounded in the second edition of the work. End of footnote. The facts to be explained are the circumstances of our Lord's crucifixion, or the stories about these, and the belief in his divinity. For a clue to the belief, Dr. Fraser goes back to the Babylonians and Persians. These people, he tells us, had a custom at a spring festival of dressing a condemned criminal in the royal robes and throning him, granting him for five days all the privileges of the king, an incarnation of the god for whom the criminal was a substitute, then stripping, flogging, and hanging him. At an earlier period, he avers, the king himself, after one year's reign, had been wont to be sacrificed. The Jews are supposed to have taken over this custom from the Persians and to have observed it at the feast known as Purim. They further borrowed a practice assumed to have existed of keeping a pair of condemned criminals, one of whom was sacrificed, the other was set free. It was in a scene of this kind that Jesus is conjectured to have taken the part of the mock king and after having had the honors of royalty with its accompanying divinity thrust upon him to have been ignominiously stripped, scourged, and crucified. It would be a waste of time to treat this theory of Dr. Fraser's as a serious explanation of the events of the crucifixion, but the reader will certainly be astonished to discover, if he takes the trouble to inquire, that the whole thing, from bottom to top, is a pyramid of baseless conjecture. There is not, so far as appears, a scintilla of real evidence that the Babylonians or Persians ever had such a custom of sacrificing a god-king or a substitute at a spring festival, or that the Jews borrowed or possessed it or that such scenes as are described were enacted at the Feast of Purim, or that any such ideas were connected with Christ's mockery, scourging, and death. Footnote. 
See the whole theory with its germ in an anecdote possibly mythical attributed to Diogenes the Cynic by Dion Christosom and a first century subjected to a minute and shattering examination in Andrew Lang's Magic and Religion. End of footnote. It is pitiful to think of such a tissue of fancies being seriously put forward, even though with diffidence, by a scholar who is far too enlightened to accept the straightforward narratives of the Gospels. And of section 13.